You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hi, and welcome to Radiotherapy. This morning we have a chock-a-block studio full of some of the smartest people in medicine, excluding your host, me, Dr. Malpractice. First up, we will be speaking with... Dr. Deborah Neesham. Deborah is a gynecological oncologist and cancer surgeon based at the Royal Women's Hospital here in Melbourne. She has been looking after women with cancer for almost 20 years and is involved in multiple national and international clinical trials. She's the examination coordinator for the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Ranscog, and has been the chair of that onco- of the oncology subspecialty at that prestigious college. Deborah has served on the board of Victorian Cytology Services and the Women's Cancer Foundation. She will be telling us what we need to know about the cancers she sees every single day. Associate Professor Edwina Wright is an infectious disease consultant and researcher specialising in the area of HIV. She led the first PrEP study in Australia. PrEP stands for Pre-Exposure to HIV Prophylaxis. She is also the PI, Principal Investigator of the PrEP-X study, which has enrolled over 5,000 people across Australia. I'll be dropping so many acronyms during her segment, you'll need a broom to sweep them up. But Edwina will be explaining it all when she talks with us about her work, which has changed the lives of so many people. Plus, a big plus, we'll be joined by Nurse EpiPen, who, uh, as you know, is the favourite nurse here in uh, in uh, radiotherapy land. It's just too much talent to squeeze into one hour of radiotherapy, so stick with us for what in a perfect world would earn you at least 10 professional development points. Good mer- morning, Nurse EpiPen. Good morning. You're not dressed in lycra like you usually no, are on a Sunday morning. No, I'm whizzing off after here to go and speak at a haematology conference in Melbourne. Let me guess, so, yep. about the spleen. Yes, you guessed it. So... We're doing something all about spleens and they hadn't really heard much about us. And so it's a bit of a plug, a bit of an update, a bit of... So these are haematologists that Mm -hmm. look after people that have had cancer, Mm -hmm. uh, patients with cancers Mm -hmm. and um, spleen dysfunctions and they're going to learn all about us. Fantastic. And we should let listeners know that you are the... Director, manager? Nurse manager. Nurse manager of the Victorian Spleen Australia. Mel, you always get that one wrong. We started small and now we're Spleen Australia. Spleen Australia. Soon it'll be Spleen the World. Well, I hope so. Uh, We should also welcome uh, Dr Deborah Neesham. Thank you so much for coming in. My absolute pleasure. Lovely to be here. Now, you came in from a long, long way away, so many, many thanks. And Professor Edwina Wright, you also came in from a long way away after someone special in your life's 21st. (laughs) Yeah, my pleasure, no problem. And you are looking so chipper and fresh after (laughs) a 21st. What's the secret? (laughs) Dance a lot. (laughs) See, that is is the solution to so many of the the world's problems. Dancing is just the way to go. Hey, uh, EpiPen, tell us about um, your... What you're named after uh, is in short supply. Okay, of. so my my first name is uh, Pen or Penny, and uh, and then I have done some epidemiology in the past. I have a graduate diploma in epidemiology, and 
then to come on the show, we all have pseudonyms. So I don't often use my full name, but I have my EpiPen. So I am a person who is a nurse and I have some epidemiology training. So we put the two together and I came. we came up with Nurse EpiPen. So Such a good... We all have no. your malpractice <laughs> and my niece who is going to come on who's got a very bad eye infection. Oh. She's misdiagnosis. So we have a lot of fun with some of these pseudonyms. Yeah. So so I'm EpiPen. So I, and because there's a shortage of EpiPens, I just thought I'd touch on this briefly. Sure. So um, EpiPens, are, it's an epinephrine um, drug that's given to people that have these very severe allergic reactions. And epinephrine's kind of like adrenaline. Correct, yeah. correct. So if, so some people, and there's, but we've talked on this, about this in the program in the past, that some people have these very bad reactions to certain substances, for example, peanuts or bee stings, and they can have an anaphylaxis, which is life-threatening, and people's, their throats swell up, up and they can't breathe and mm. they need to take something quickly to alleviate the symptoms. And there's been a shortage of these um, injections that they give themselves and it's uh, sort of caught my eye. And one of the things that I was concerned about was what's, well, how did it happen? And mm, how did it happen? How well, did we get a shortage of there was, It's a supply issue. And we do around the country around the country have issues with shortages of drugs. Mm. For example, some antibiotics yeah. they run out of or some supplies, it's just a shortage of, maybe it doesn't meet the demand mm. or there's been an issue. So we had meningococcal um, vaccines that we were very dependent on to give people without spleens, they just ran out. So, so, we so what do you do when you run out of EpiPens? Well, um, I'm not really going to answer that <laughs> okay. because what all I know. can say is when I was um, speaking to a, um, a resident GP oh, yes. who said um, that they what we really need to uh, do <coughs> is for people just to hold on to their supply. Mm. So the, in the age during the week, there was a story about a woman who had thrown her EpiPens because oh. they'd expired, thrown them out. But what they're saying, so Professor Katie Allen, who's at the uh, Murdoch Institute, she's saying that hold on to your EpiPens, they will, even though they've expired, so long as you check the fluid in the EpiPens and they're not cloudy or they're not looking um, unusual, that you can use them past the expiry date. So hold on to them and that they will be okay. And the children's EpiPens haven't run out. It's just the adult ones that seems to be in Mm. short supply. So being an asthmatic, I can sometimes, I'm, I'm sensitive to this area because if I ran out of my puffer, I'd be worried, mm. but I have always got a, an emergency puffer, and I can use an expired one. Do you know we've we've got some friends, and uh, one of the the couple uh, has anaphylactic reactions to nuts, and it's kind of like if there's a nut in the vicinity, uh, she has an anaphylactic reaction, and I get nervous going out with them if she doesn't have her epipen. She's always got her epipen, but I'm just thinking, have you got your epipen? Have you got your epipen? Because <laughs> thinking, oh my god, that's what happens. So yeah, running out ain't good, and hopefully we can get that supply back up to. So yeah, and I I scrap. went as a mother with a nursing background mm. I went, took some kids to a school camp <laughs> and there was a boy with um, an EpiPen yeah. and I and this was the first time I sort of hadn't really it came, hadn't been on my radar before yeah. so I, this is 15 years ago it was brand new and I thought, jeepers, I don't know anything about EpiPens. So I went and got 
you know, got some information and had a practice and mm. worked out what it was. And this guy, this little boy st- said, oh, I'm not feeling very well. And everyone's going, EpiPen, EpiPen. <laughs> and I said, let's just sit down and talk to him. Anyway, he was missing his mum. And he was anxious. <laughs> yeah. So I said, no, let's, it's not, this is something I'm really c- capable of managing. We don't have to worry about EpiPens. Let's just talk to him. So I think that my nursing background and a mother kicked in, but, you know, people do get quite anxious about yeah. going away with people with EpiPens. So you're the sort of perfect person to have on a school camp. I was. <laughs> I was. All those kids that got homesick, they snapped out of it pretty quickly. Hey, Deb. Yes. Um, you do operations, don't you? I do. That's essentially what I do. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. I'm a gynae cancer surgeon. And just, I mean, you were saying outside in the green room, we'll get to what you actually do during the day, but I'm actually quite interested in, in your title. Aren't surgeons called Mr and Miss? In theory, I could be a miss. Right. There's question marks about whether gynae cancer or gynae specialists are miss or whether they're still doctor. Right. Um, certainly if you have a, a FRAX um, College of Surgeons Fellow of the Royal Australian College of Surgeons, yeah. Exactly. Then those uh, female practitioners will call themselves miss. Right. But then you run the risk of then not being recognised as a medical doctor. So ah. it's a tricky situation. So I've always stuck to doctor, um, but I think it w- it's an interesting question. Isn't it? Because, you know, if I introduced you to my mum, who I'll take as the person on the bus, and I say, this is Miss Nisham, she'd say, oh, it's fantastic. But, if I, but she wouldn't presume that Miss means that you are a surgeon. No, she'd probably assume that I'd never been married. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the same. Yeah, see, there's all these kind of weird things that are tied up in titles, don't you think? Anyway, you're a gynecological surgeon. What do you do during the day? When What sorts of things do you see? Well, I'd have to say we look after women with sort of the main three cancers that we see are ovarian cancers, uterine cancers and cervical cancers in that order. Actually, probably uterus is taking over from ovary, but we'll come back to that. And then also some vaginal and vulval cancers, which are less common, but uh, certainly something that's within our remit. Mm -hmm. We see these women who are usually already diagnosed with either precancer or cancer and then work out the best way of treating them, whether it be surgical with radiation treatment or with chemotherapy or a combination Mm -hmm. of the various types. So it's a matter of making sure that when someone comes to see you that you have a definite diagnosis, you've got as much information uh, both on pathology and also on imaging to make a good decision about Mm. the way to manage them. And we put all our cancer cases through a multidisciplinary cancer meeting so that we can make... What does that mean? What does multidisciplinary cancer meeting mean? Basically, it's using as many available brain spaces to make a decision about the best way to manage something. So we have pathologists, expert gynaecological pathologists at the meeting. We have expert radiologists who look at images and x-rays and give us information about potential sites of spread. Mm -hmm. And it's very important that these people are expert in their area because it is very different when you look at um, x-rays with someone who understands the pattern of spread of different cancers compared to the general radiology place down the road where they are fantastic at at, uh, doing reporting and 
examining films, but if they don't have that intimate knowledge of the particular way a particular cancer spreads, sometimes some subtleties are missed. Mm. So it's also a matter of deciding the best imaging technique for a particular situation. So is this where so, so a patient would come to you with a gynecological uh, cancer with a diagnosis, you would then um, discuss option, well, you'd say to the patient, I'm going to go talk with my colleagues about this and you'd go into a, a boardroom with four or five different specialists in the area, discuss what the best outcome is and then come and relate that to the patient? The patient's not there in real time mm -hmm. because we actually have a meeting where we actually discuss up to 40 or 50 cases at a time. How long does that take? Oh, a, a, a long time. Yeah. Um, sure. A lot of them are referrals, some sure. of them are post-operative patients, yeah. some of them are new, uh, new referrals, some of them are just trying to triage whether we need to see them or not. Right. Some of them are recurrences and we have to decide on the next step in treatment. Um, so, in fact, there's usually about 20 to 30 people in these meetings. So we'll often have four or five medical oncologists, we'll have two or three radiologists, we'll have two or three pathologists, we'll have registrars uh, and obviously the gynae cancer surgeons plus um, often familial cancer clinic yeah. um, experts. So it is truly multidisciplinary. Wow. It's truly across the spectrum, all the people who may be involved mm. in managing someone. And it means that when we do make a decision about treatment, it means that everybody knows about that mm. person and can um, then say that they've seen the images, they've seen the pathology, and they have already agreed in that sort of multifaceted environment that this is the best way forward. Yeah. That must be comforting to a patient, I would imagine, that you know that you're getting the experts from the area all chipping into making a decision. I think it's very important mm. um, that that is um, communicated with the patient because they do need to know that there have been several experts mm. looking at their case mm. because we always say there is the option of having a second mm -hmm. opinion and everybody appreciates how important that is. But by the same token, you don't want them to waste their time going to another specialist mm -hmm. who's already mm -hmm. seen their case and has already agreed that mm -hmm. that's the best way forward. Mm -hmm. So as long as the cases have been seen at that multidisciplinary meeting, you can be assured that you have got a very broad spectrum of advice on a particular situation. Mm -hmm. And we're very fortunate in that we can put both um, the private patients that we see and the public patients that we th see through that same uh, rigorous um, meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and there are only three centres across Melbourne that do that. So it's a very small space. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing is that women who are diagnosed with a cancer in this area should make sure that they are discussed at one of these mm. multidisciplinary meetings to make sure that they do get the best available treatment. And if, if I'll just take a bit of a lateral step here. In the, what's changed in the treatment of gynecological cancers in the last 20 years? I mean, is it, has nothing changed or has it been like everything's changed? Um, most of these changes are incremental and it's right. very different, difficult to sort of say that something has changed dramatically. Right. I think the biggest thing that as a surgeon that I've been involved in is taking on minimal, minimally invasive surgery, so laparoscopic surgery rather than big open surgery. Right. And that's revolutionised some of the treatments. In, in what way has it revolutionised the treatment? Well, the biggest thing... For instance, women with cancers of the uterus 
um, are often um, women who have other comorbidities, mm -hmm. particularly associated with diabetes and high blood pressure and often overweight. And when we operated on these women, they would very frequently get big wound infections. The wounds okay. would often break down. If you're doing a cancer operation, you have to go right from the top to the bottom. So they'd have a big open cut from from the sort of really? above the yeah. belly button right down to the ziffy stern, uh, down to the pubic symphysis. And it meant that they had much more risk of poor healing. Mm. The wounds breaking down, they'd often be in hospital for two or three weeks. Now they usually go home on the first or second day after surgery. So if you're talking about revolution, mm. that sort of surgical revolution has been absolutely amazing mm. in managing these women. Mm. Unfortunately, we can't usually translate that to surgery for ovarian cancer because a lot of that is very big uh, tumours that we're trying to remove and often again it goes right from under the stomach down to the to the pelvic area. But still, we're often doing some of the interval surgery with with laparoscopic or minimally invasive. What does interval surgery mean? So, oh, we're starting another conversation altogether, but um, one of the things that's been happening more recently with ovarian cancer, it usually presents late. So two thirds of women presenting with an ovarian cancer are diagnosed when it's already spread. And that means that there's disease throughout the abdominal cavity when you find it. Mm. And there's been some studies now that show that if you treat with chemotherapy before you do the surgery or do the surgery halfway through their chemotherapy treatment, you can shrink the tumour down and the surgery itself is then less morbid so they have mm -hmm. less complications and side effects mm -hmm. from their surgery. And so if you're in a situation where you don't think you can remove every bit of cancer in that person when they're diagnosed, it's been shown that there's no downside and potentially some upsides in in terms of their recovery from surgery to give the chemotherapy first and do the surgery mm -hmm. halfway through. Mm -hmm. So interval just means doing it halfway through their treatment rather than at the beginning. So, um, uh, Dr Nisham, just some clinical signs for people that might be listening. How would they know that they might... I mean, you've said that people, pres women present late. If... if um, somebody was having some symptoms, what might you describe as those ones that might be uh, a suggestive of an ovarian cancer? Well, it is very difficult because almost all of the symptoms represent spread. So women do present with bloating and abdominal pain and difficulty eating and feeling full. And almost all of those symptoms are of spread from the original ovarian cancer. I mean, the ovaries are very like the uterus, that they can get very, very large without causing any symptoms. They're like babies. Babies grow very big and the only problem is they take up space. Unfortunately, the ovaries um, have cancer cells that are often on the outside that spread before the ovaries get that big. So there are some ovarian cancers that can get very big without spreading but they're the minority, the vast majority spread first. And is there a blood test or screening for ovarian cancer? Unfortunately, no. There's no screening currently available for ovarian cancer. We've done lots of things looking for tests and trying to pick up a problem. But because these cells actually fall off the surface of the ovary when they're microscopic, any blood test is unlikely to pick that up. I just had a flashback, as you were saying, 
um, blood test for ovarian cancer. I remember this thing called CA125. Is that still around? We still use the CA125. And the problem is that the CA125 is both non-specific. It's a blood test. For, it's a blood test, for yes. For ovarian cancer, yeah. And it doesn't necessarily, if it's elevated, it doesn't necessarily mean someone's got ovarian cancer. So under menopause, un, uh, below the age of menopause, women with an elevated blood test, CA125, may just have bad periods or endometriosis or um, fibroids or they've got their period or they're pregnant. All of those things will put up the CA125. After menopause, it may be slightly more useful. But even with stage one ovarian cancer, which is when you want to find it... Which means it hasn't spread. Which means it hasn't spread. Half of women will have a normal CA125. So it's not particularly useful. It's mm. very good at monitoring the disease when you've got ah, it, okay. yep. but it's not very good at picking it up before you've got it. So I know there's lots of um, research and funding, uh, you know, money raised for research into ovarian cancer. Where is, where's that going? Is what, where, what are we, um, what's there's happening lots in this of, area? I mean, there, there is still lots of work looking for proteins in the bloodstream that may be indicative of something that predates the development of an ovarian cancer. There's a lot of research going into better treatment for ovarian cancer. I think prevention is obviously something we're very keen on looking at. How do you, how do you prevent it, ovarian cancer? Well, ultimately, the only thing you can do is remove the ovaries and tubes. Um, and even that is only 95% protective because some of these cancers actually arise within the abdominal cavity, right. not related to the ovary tubes. Now, there's a new theory with ovarian cancer that most of these cancers actually start in the fallopian tubes, not in the ovaries, particularly in women who carry the BRCA gene, which is the breast cancer-related predisposing gene that puts them at risk of both breast and ovarian cancer. And... A lot of the studies, when we've taken out their ovaries and tubes as a preventive strategy... This is for women that are at super high risk of cancer. Super high risk. We actually find that at least two-thirds of the early cancers or sort of pre-cancers are almost exclusively in the fallopian tubes. So there's a new theory that if we remove fallopian tubes at the time of a routine hysterectomy or remove them instead of clipping tubes for women who've decided they've finished their family and want to have their tubes tied then we actually may prevent um, a certain number of ovarian cancers. But this is very much unknown at this point in time. Tell us about the women who are at super high risk. What puts them at super high risk of ovarian cancer? Well, there's obviously um, some genes that are associated with that increased risk, and the BRCA gene is the one that everybody seems to know about. It's not that common, but it's particularly common um, in um, Ashkenazi Jewish populations. And women who have been diagnosed with a common ovarian cancer type have about a one in five chance of being diagnosed with one of these genes that actually predispose them to both breast and ovarian cancer. It's much less, it, it's much less common in women diagnosed with breast cancer, but certainly if you're diagnosed under the age of 30, it's something that they would look at. And again, there are particular types of breast cancer that are more likely to be related Mm. to these genes. Mm. But the um, ovarian cancers, despite the fact that, you know, most of them are of this particular type, the high-grade serous type, which is the commonest ovarian cancer type, the vast majority still are not related to these genes, but more than we originally thought. We used to say it was about 5%. We now think it's about 20%. Are unrelated to those genes. Are related to those genes. Are related to those genes, right. Yeah. 
And as far as the incidence of ovarian cancer, we is there an increase or...? It certainly is increasing, not as fast as uterine cancers, but that's another story. Um, oh, no, hang, hang on a second. Yeah. Why, why are uterine cancers increasing so quickly? Because they're associated with unopposed oestrogen hormones, which are female hormones, and after menopause, usually the ovaries are no longer active, but they still produce a trickle of, of oestrogen. Hmm. However, you also produce a lot of oestrogen in your fat tissues. And as a population, we're getting more overweight over time. And we have this unopposed oestrogen, which is no longer being... Um, Broken down or metabolised? Well, it's not so much that. It's more that it's not being balanced by progesterone, oh, right. which is what the ovaries produce when they're producing eggs. That is So, so one of the consequences of, of, of increasing obesity or overweightness is, is increase... increasing incidence of, of cancer of the uterus. And it's something that's not commonly talked about, but in terms of the kind of cancers that are associated with obesity, that's definitely very high on the list. Sure. So uterine cancers are on the increase. Are there other gynecological ones that are on the increase as well? Ovarian is also, and we don't quite know the reason for that. There's a lot of evidence, and one thing that people probably don't know, and it's not widely advertised, is the oral contraceptive pill actually reduces your risk. It at least halves your risk, possibly up to 80% reduction in risk of ovarian cancer. Really? Really. So I didn't know that. It, you know, it gets a lot of bad press for other reasons. Yeah. but it, And the other thing it does is because it's progesterone dominant, ah, right. it will also markedly yeah. reduce the risk of uterine cancers. Right. Right. So the contraceptive pill is, is very protective against female cancers. Right. So would you prescribe the oral contraceptive pill for people in menopause, women in menopause? No. Well, HRT. No. <laughs> There's a difference. There's a difference between the contraceptive pill, which is suppressing ovulation and suppressing the ovaries, and hormone replacement therapy where you're replacing the oestrogen and progesterone more naturally. So they're, they're completely different concepts and strengths and... HRT, if you, you you don't have an increased risk of uterine cancer, but you unless you take estrogen by itself without the progesterone. But there is some evidence that if you take HRT for more than ten years, there's some epidemiological evidence that you have a slight increased risk of ovarian cancer. So we're not quite sure where that sits, but it's only a very small increased risk it's, after it's, a long it's, period it's of time. It's that incredible balancing act of mm. taking in all the risk factors, all the issues, all the problems associated with menopause and balancing that against a slight risk yeah. of, of ovarian cancer. Can I ask you a question? Have you noticed a, a difference or a change in the presentation of cervical cancers subsequent to Gardasil, the HPV vaccination? Or has that not come yet? It's probably not quite there yet. Yeah. Um, certainly, we've seen a massive reduction in precancerous changes. Really? Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. It's made a huge difference. The problem we face is that the ones that do crop up are harder to diagnose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, the new screening test that's just come in, mm -hmm. which is absolutely fantastic. Just tell us in 10 seconds what that is. It's basically based on the HPV virus mm -hmm. that triggers the precancerous changes. So it's designed to test for the virus before it even changes the cells. 
great. So we've seen big changes there. Um, has the Gardasil or the HPV vaccination made difference a difference to other sorts of gynaecological cancers or is it just cervical? It think? will also make a difference to vulval cancers, about right. half of which are related to HPV. Right. And most vaginal cancers are related to HPV, plus anal cancers, um, yep. tonsillar cancers, um, so there is probably some reduction in risk of those sorts of cancers going to come about as a result of both males and females being vaccinated against the Gardasil. So I did a little bit of research um, before the show and tried to piece together some of the things that uh, advice for women to reduce mm. their chances of um, these gynae cancers. And I did come up with alcohol and I think that's... Oh, Deb's not looking... She's not looking happy. <laughs> she's, well, she's, she's not, not sure. wanting to be deprived of her alcohol, <laughs> no, basically. No, 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 no but I, I think it's alcohol in moderation, yeah. but it, it is certainly linked to... Or there is some small association with breast, ovarian and bowel cancers yes. in general. So yes. what, what to, to the people, that the families that might be listening, our six listeners, what's your <laughs> advice about alcohol and... I think for women? alcohol in moderation is, is definitely very important. If you're going to say, you know, what can women do in, um, to lessen their chances of, of gynecological cancers, what sorts of things would you say? If you're talking about, I mean, the oral contraceptive pill is the biggest one, okay. I think, if they're not actually wanting to be pregnant. Right. So as a good contraceptive, they can tolerate it. I think it's yeah. an excellent um, option. Yeah. I think the Mirena IUD, which is also a contraceptive, mm -hmm. reduces the risk of uterine cancers, probably doesn't have any effect on the ovaries, but may make the tubes a little bit less active also. Mm. Cervical cancer, the most important thing is making sure that your children are immunised in school. And if mm -hmm. you've got access to the vaccine up until the age of 56, you can access the vaccine mm -hmm. in the community. It has much less effect, but certainly will reduce that risk. Mm -hmm. Um, and otherwise, living healthily and exercise, exercise is, is the key. And I'm a bit of a nag about exercise and oh, healthy eating. I, but, I found a similar person. But also, exercise. remember we had the haematologist uh, on that also said sleep, rest. Really? So that your immune system oh, gets yeah, a chance right. to, to, replenish, to yeah. replenish. And they're coming up with saying it's more, so like seven or eight hours a night is absolutely essential. I'm needed nine. If I don't get nine hours, I'm just terrible to be with. Um, Dr. Deb, um, we could speak for a lot longer about these sorts of things because there's lots of questions I want to ask you about personalised medicine and new treatments and um, vaccines and so forth. But can we get your commitment that you're going to come back onto the show? Love to. Fantastic Thank stuff. Thank you so much, Dr. Deb Nation. Now... Professor Edwina Wright, who is sitting off to my left, who we were just talking, we both work at the same... Talking. Talking at the same uh, institution <laughs> and uh, smile each, at each other sort of pleasantly in the corridor and now we've finally been introduced by you, Nurse Epicent. So thank you. Professor Wright, tell us what you do. Well, uh, I'm a doctor. I, I mm. see patients and I'm an infectious diseases specialist So, and I've specialised in HIV medicine. So the patients I typically see are people living with HIV. And um, I also do a lot of research in the area of HIV. And you and I are two people in the studio who, were, who once worked at Fairfield Hospital. Yeah, I moved there. I started there in 1990 as a, a, a a young green infectious diseases <laughs> registrar and 
walked into this remarkable place where all these young men were dying from AIDS mm. and um, and HIV dementia and a number of things and you know and then you go down into a different ward and there was people with typhoid and tetanus and it was just the most remarkable place Victoria's fever hospital mm. the uh, the iron lung uh, unit in the in the back down there and it really, I, yeah, as I say, I worked there for a while. It was an amazing place. Uh, and I went there too during my Did nursing you? training. I, I, Did you? Yes. Me. And I went there too doing my <laughs> medical oh, training. Hello. Yeah, hello. Hello. All four of us. We're all old enough. I still think you youngins. <laughs> Wouldn't have thought. Um, and now you're working at another august institution. Um, and you are, uh, you're here to talk about PrepEx, which is mm. prophylaxis for HIV. And we'll get into what that actually means. Take us back to a time where there wasn't prevention for HIV. What would have happened in those days for patients? So? Well, I guess you're referring to the 80s and the 90s and um, the prevention that, that, that came about ultimately was condoms, but um, it was took a little while for people to figure out that that was the most efficacious way to prevent HIV. Mm. And plaudits to within Australia and overseas, largely the gay community and then and heterosexuals for saying, okay, if this is what it takes, we use condoms. Mm-hmm. And when, when um, men who have sex with men, gay men in Australia took up condoms to prevent HIV, we actually saw a tremendous decline in new infections. Mm-hmm. And it's not an easy thing to do. Humans are fantastically, uh, you know, a- averse to putting condoms on. And um, it's because it's a pleasure killer and people don't like them but they did it yeah i I didn't realize that the um the impact of condoms was so large it was at the time it was terrific yeah Yeah. and then interestingly um the antiretroviral drugs the antiviral drugs that we began to uh, find and put people on clinical trials to see if they could drive down the viral levels of hiv virus in people's systems in their bodies we began one drug at a time and then we'd add a second drug in the next trial and then finally in 1996 there was this remarkable renaissance this incredible um, turning point where it was found that if a person had hiv and they had three drugs in their system typically that targeted different parts of the virus then the virus would submit it could be overcome it could be the levels could be driven down in the system so that the person's immune system didn't have to do all the work to kill the virus instead the drugs came in and did it so the immune system had this wonderful reprieve and people could have recovery so Back then in 1996, we started putting people on three drugs and, yeah, they were tough drugs. They really, many of them were so toxic, but people were, were brave and mm-hmm. took them. They, mm-hmm. you know, they wanted to live. What we now know all those years later is that by having put people on drugs or people taking the drugs, let's give them the credit, um, and they drove down their levels. In fact, the science that's just come out in the last few years shows that from then on, once the viral levels went down, they were they really couldn't have ever transmitted the virus to another person. We didn't know that back then, but we know that now. It's now known as treatment, as prevention. So I take HIV treatment, let's say, and um, it's effective, and I have several months where, the, where I have a blood test and you can't find the virus. That means my chance of passing the virus on, say, through condomless sex with my partner is effectively zero. So we didn't know that back then, but in, in I think very poignantly, what we we were all doing then as pre- clinicians and people taking the meds was was prevention. So, 
you know, it, it's really remarkable. And um, there's now this really cool movement um, going around the world called uh, U equals U, um, meaning um, undetectable viral loads, do your blood test, can't find it, uh, equals untransmissible, or the Americans call it untransmittable, U equals U. And it's a big community-based movement saying, hey, all this science is sitting there saying that I can no longer transmit the virus. So it gives people a tremendous sense of um, sort of a, a, a grasp at humanity again, that they're not going to pass this virus on to other people, that it's essentially something that's just contained within them and, and stigma levels fall away. So it's a really remarkable time in HIV prevention mm. at the moment. But it, in, incredibly, it was really happening all along. We just didn't have the studies to show us. Does that also mean that if U equals U, they're not going to transmit it transplacentally to the baby? It's it's that those studies haven't been done, but um, we know that uh, women who have uh, undete so-called undetectable levels, um, the chance of transmission is incredibly low, sort of one percent or less, and. Uh, uh, so you, one can't just graft the findings of these recent studies straight into the mother-to-child transmission, but it, the, the risk becomes incredibly low also. Mm. And does that mean they can breastfeed or still not? Well, the, again, those studies are still to be done, but um, you, the, the, the levels certainly go down in, in the blood. Yeah, my, my colleague Michelle Giles at, at the Alfred is our, our expert in this area and, and um, she, she'd be wonderful to talk about this very subject. Okay, you just dumped her in, so she's going to... <laughs> coming up on the show. Sorry, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll get to U equals U in a, in a, in a second, mm. but you just talked about taking these three different types of antiviral drugs. Just tell us about the impost that, that poses on somebody to have to take those drugs. I mean, the side effects that you have to be very, very um, precise in the time too, don't you? Well, let's say, and I'm going to be a, I'm going to make myself a gay man because in Australia, 70% of infections occur in gay men. Um, let's say I'm 25 years old and I've just been diagnosed this week with HIV, alas. Um, in fact, what you're going to say to me is the evidence is in to start treatments as soon as possible. And there are a number of treatment options whereupon you can choose, it's one pill a day. The three drugs are co-formulated within a daily pill. Yes, the pill might be a bit large, but it's it's a daily pill. They're usually forgiving in terms of being able to take them a couple of hours, you know, if you oh, normally really? have it at eight in the morning, okay. you have it at 10 the next morning, they're forgiving. And by, oh. by doing that and taking your advice, mm -hmm. the chances are very high that I may indeed have mm -hmm. the same lifespan as my counterpart in the community who's HIV negative and never acquires HIV. So I can go on and live a, a full life. I can have children if, I'm, if I decide I'm a gay man, but I can still have kids. I can still have children because, you know, all of that. So it's that impost in that medical sense, yeah. yes, I have to pay for prescriptions is is reasonably good. There's all this other impost, though, which is more intangible, such as my own stigma about being a positive mm -hmm. person, mm -hmm. the world's stigma mm -hmm. still about me being a positive mm -hmm. person. And that, can, that impost can never be discounted because stigma is just so prevalent. Mm. Um, and the side effects of these, these medications? Really, um, they're... they're <laughs> They're remarkably modest overall, certainly compared to really? what... Yeah, they are. People indeed may have a tummy upset or a headache or fatigue um, and they may last for a few weeks and then they then they subside. 
Um, there are rarer sort of toxicities, if you like, not uh, that may evolve over time. Um, and again, where the, the 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 push towards refining medicine and treating the virus and, and giving people medicine that's a, not few side effects and few long term toxicities is a big push towards it. Not just that, it, the push is towards. Um, the way you deliver the drugs. So, in fact, we might find in five, three to five years' time that people have an injection every two or three months um, and they might have to take a pill as well, but, you know, it, it, it's going to change. Yeah. I, I can't imagine even thinking in those times when we were at Fairfield Hospital yeah. in the early 90s that there would be one pill which yeah. would potentially... Um, offer uh, uh, a disease-free life in the same kind of um, lifespan uh, as as uh, somebody who's HIV negative. That's just remarkable. I actually didn't know that, what you just said now. Yeah, I think um, HIV has mm. been this... It's given... It's, it's forced science into a space, <laughs> if you like, yeah. to, to really take a scientific discovery forward and to fast-track ideas and to have new technologies and I think hopefully many other branches of medicine uh, will have um, certainly hepatitis C treatment I think yeah, has, has yeah. benefited because they realise you can't just treat a virus with one drug you're mm. going to have to treat it with at least two So um, Edwina could you tell us about PrEP? Yeah absolutely so um, it's very similar the drugs that are used to treat people living with HIV if you take two of those commonly used drugs, the names are tenofovir and emtricitabine, put them in a single tablet and say to people mm. living with um, medium to high risk of HIV infection, if you opt in to take this medication every day, um, that that will reduce your chance of HIV transmission by about 99%. So. Um, the 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 agreement, the patient doctor agreement, let's say in that setting, is that will you please come back every three months? I'll give you the script again. We'll do an HIV test then, and sexually transmitted infection screen every three months, and let's go. Mm. And um, you know, a number of people have said, what if we had had <clears throat> that so-called pre-exposure prophylaxis back in the 80s? Can you imagine how, how the world, the epidemic would have fared? But we didn't, and we do now. Um, the evidence for PrEP is, is really strong from fantastically well-done, randomised, placebo-controlled, blinded studies. So, you know, no one knew if they were on PrEP or not, and the data came out. Um, Australia leads the world in terms of um, the number of people who are eligible for PrEP. In other words, the, the, the HIV risk associated with behaviour behaviours that they are part of their life. Um, in terms of how many of them have got access to PrEP, so there's been estimates. Let's say, and again, I'm referring to gay men, and there are, it's not just gay men in this country at risk of HIV, but most of the epidemiology has been well studied in gay men. So we've got about 30,000, let's say, men who have sex with men, who, when you do all the, the, you know, the calculations, are at high risk of HIV. We know through clinical trials that have been funded by state and territory governments that have made PrEP available that about 50% of those people are on PrEP. And so it's wow. a remarkable coverage. And um, we've, we've seen recently New South Wales uh, has put out figures where they, they enrolled 9,000 people into a study that provided PrEP. Uh, Victoria, uh, we've enrolled around 4,000 or so and across Victoria, 
Tasmania and South Australia, our studies enrolled over 5,000 people, but New South Wales have come out saying we are seeing declines in new infections. This mm. is what we wanted mm. at a population level, and that's the study that we've been running, PrepEx, designed to deliver the medication to several thousand people in the, with the hypothesis that that will reduce new infections in the state of Victoria over time. So say I'm a newly um, gay person, just had sex with somebody and the condom broke or didn't use it, What? and I'm, and I'm a bit anxious about the, the next morning thinking about what's happened and what risk I might have been at for HIV, what, what do I do? Well, there's in fact um, a 24-hour PEP service, which is post-exposure prophylaxis, where we would see you and say, okay, looks like you may be at risk of having just been exposed to HIV. If you so choose, here's 28 days of the same medication, in fact, and we'll follow you up for 28 days to make sure you haven't um, become infected with HIV. And then we talk to you and say, hey, listen, if that has that happened to you a lot? Have condoms broken a lot? Or mm. do you um, have, uh, do you in fact choose to have condomless sex with casual mm. partners? And you say yes, and you go, well, how about PrEP? Roll straight over onto PrEP. And um, <coughs> if people want to get in touch with somebody who can talk about them with PrEP whereabouts is the best place to get some information? Well, it's now freely available all around Australia. So doctors all around Australia so and nurse GPs? practitioners. Yes, so you got your GP or? Yeah, but I think if you go, if you just even look up PrepEx, Google PrepEx and you'll see us at the, at the Alfred Hospital or ASHAM, the Australasian Society of HIV Medicine has a whole page on PrEP. Um, it's now been approved on PBS. It's subsidised and it's it's wonderful. It's uh, you've blown my mind. Seriously, <laughs> I I didn't realise the the landscape had shifted so much. Mm. Once again, we're going to ask you to come back on the show, um, uh, Professor Edwin Wright. Thank you so much for for giving us that update. You've been listening to Radio Therapy, uh, me, Dr. Malpractice. We've just been speaking with Professor Edwin Wright and uh, Dr. Deb Neesham and, of course, Nurse EpiPen. And uh, we're going to sign off now, but we'll see you next Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Cheers. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.